Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Helping you wake up, remembering this is our Father's world. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. Well, good morning again. It's the 28th of April, 2022. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. I'm Carmen LaBerge. This is the Faith Radio Network. I want to celebrate today with the Reed family. Marine uh, Trevor Reed is now back in the United States. And this is one of those conversations where, you know, we absolutely want to rejoice with those who are rejoicing. We want to acknowledge the goodness of, um, of God and our gratitude to him for working through the diplomatic process, I, I, it's not lost on me that um, this was accomplished between the United States and Russia in the middle of a very hot war um, and global disagreements over many, many things. Um, and so I'm grateful. I'm grateful for this. Uh, there remain two Americans um, who continue to be unjustly uh, detained and incarcerated in Russia um, and so I'm I'm concerned for their welfare as well. Also concerned for other Americans around the world um, who are in similar situations in countries where you know they think they're going to get something from the United States by you know taking Americans uh, when we are traveling abroad uh, for one reason or another. And so um, I I know the concerns related to this in terms of um, the risk that more Americans would be detained um, because there are those who hope they're going to get something from the United States um, for that. But I also, uh, which is just called, it's it's like hostage diplomacy. Um, and, and I recognize that. And I know that there are some countries in the world, they operate this way, North Korea being, you know, sort of chief among them. Um, but I also want to just recognize the relief and joy in this one family today. Um, that's not lost on me, and it shouldn't be lost on us uh, as well. Coming home is a big is a big deal. Um, I imagine that when he set foot back on American soil, um, his gratitude for this nation um, swelled in ways that are hard to imagine. Uh, and so, welcome home, uh, Marine Reed. Um, and I have gratitude for those in the diplomatic corps who helped end this three-year ordeal in Russia. Um, I, I also think it demonstrates something to each of us and all of us about uh, keeping lines of communication open even when we are in deep disagreement. So uh, who comes to mind when I suggest to you that lines of communication should remain open even when we are in deep disagreement. Is there somebody in your life with whom you deeply disagree, from whom maybe you even are, you know, at some level in, in entrenched, like you've got, a, you've got a difference that you just don't think is ever going to be resolved? Keeping the lines of communication open with them is essential because who knows, who knows what God might use to bring someone home. 
Peter Kapsner is waiting to join us. Um, I'm going to lead off with a question about what kind of mischief Peter has been up to this week. I've been um, I've been noting a number of things happening on the other side of the pond, and you know Peter travels um, uh, to uh, to the UK enough that it makes me wonder when things happen over there if he's the cause of it. So. Is Peter Kapsner the person who made 12,000 complaints about the noise from airplanes in Dublin? We're going to find out next here on Mornings with Carmen. We are now going to examine whether or not he is a person of a complaining spirit. <laughs> Carmen, I don't know what kind of crack investigative journalistic staff you have that you're finding me. My favorite character has always been Frank Abagnale from Catch Me If You Can. And somehow the morning show, Mornings with Carmen, is starting to track me down. I'm not happy about this at all. Yeah. So um, so we're on to you now, Peter. So there are 12,273 complaints. <laughs> Um, logged by the same individual about aircraft noise in 2021 in Dublin. And so um, I think you're off the hook because you weren't there, um, you know, over the course of the entire time. Um, But it would require like 33 or 34 complaints a day to be (laughs) registered um, in order to achieve this. It what well you know it's surprisingly easy, Carmen, because all you need is a VPN blocker uh, and a class full of thirty students at Northwestern. You you think I'm teaching <laughs> ethics on those mornings? But you, if you can picture the call bank that we have as our share events at Faith Radio, I just line mm. up the students. Mm. You can get thirty four complaints in pretty quickly and move on to class. It, it works out pretty well. Yeah, so um, they think they know who uh, who is responsible for this, and it's in it is in fact not you. Um, right. But the um, here's what I wanted to surface about this. Like, right? So yep. you you have to be pretty focused on complaining. You have to be you have to be a person who's really um, doesn't have time in their life to sort of observe anything except this one thing that irritates you. Yeah, it's really true, Carmen. We actually, in the, in the business that I own, we had a fairly extended staff meeting yesterday that running a small business, and, and anyone listening knows what a small business can be like. It's it's expect the unexpected. It's a ton of variables. You never know what's going to happen. And sure enough, <clears throat> in any given day, there are going to be events that understandably you would want to complain around. Um, and, and it's one thing to acknowledge an issue that might be happening in a relationship or in a business circumstance or maybe in your church or whatever that is. But how you approach that issue, I think, really can differentiate the believer from um, from other ways in which we approach it in this world. And, and unfortunately, I think many of us as believers get caught up in just more of a little bit of a, of a negative uh, spirit. I, I think one of the great character traits of believers can be the optimistic problem-solving spirit, uh, whether that's a relational one, again, or a business one, vocation with our kids, whatever it looks like. And so we talked as a staff yesterday, and there's not a lot I can do in a, a non-faith-based organization 
to encourage them to say, you know, this is not about suppressing your complaints or your attitudes. This is about entering into a practice where you change from the inside out and you begin to perceive and see the circumstances in the world around you differently. And and whatever that journey, and I was able to share a little bit of my faith journey in terms of um, transformation of my heart in those ways and encouraged my employees to do the same thing, um, that, that we see the world differently. Because I think, Carmen, we could really bear witness in these tangible ways um, with how we approach the inevitability of, of all the variables that happen in life. So I, I don't know what this person is like in Dublin, uh, you know, but and, and I sympathize to some degree if you've got planes flying over your head all day long. But I still think there's an invitation to how we approach things and even how we see things from the inside out. Yeah, um, I there were there's so many conversations we could have. Um, one about you know allowing things that are going on the, the noise in the environment around us to so distract us from whatever it is we're supposed to be doing that then yeah. all we can do is complain. Like that seems like um, a sadness as well. All right, but I want to pivot because I need you to define the word shibboleth. The word of the day is shibboleth, um, and what is it, and why are we talking about it? Yeah, they're dividing lines, right? They they are it's it's a sociological it's a idea. Fancy, it's such a fancy word though. Like it don't you feel like word. every time I'm tempted to say, well, the dividing line is that I need to start saying shibboleth just because sure. I think I will sound so much more fancy. <laughs> Well, I think I'll be a little confused because I, I would think that maybe it's, it's a pasta meal that you're brewing up or something. I don't know entirely what that is, but it, it is a very fancy word um, to describe dividing lines between people and people groups. And, and even your opener, when you talked a bit, who, who are people from whom you might be divided? Now, now shibboleth is a little bit more us against them. It's community against community. And, uh, and sociologists use it to examine how different social groups create boundaries in, in their myths and in their rituals and their ways of life that then separate them from other people. And we do it all the time, don't we? I, I think, again, a great invitation for believers is to recognize that our battle is never against the beloved. If, I, if I'm going to appeal to Ephesians 6, our, our battle's never against flesh and blood. Um, we're not meant to have arbitrary dividing lines between us. Now, there is a dividing line in Scripture. There is a, a wheat and the tares and sheep and the goats, but that's up for Jesus to figure out uh, at the end and the final judgment. For us, we're meant to not artificially divide ourselves from other people. We're meant to bear witness to all people in our way of life and then invite anybody over that shibboleth line who, who would want to be part of the community of faith. But boy, we're so tribal all the time, aren't we, in terms of, of how we want to divide ourselves from other people? And I think we just have to have a, a bigger perspective than that. Yeah. So I um, I appreciate just the having a word that I could pitch out there in the midst yep. of a conversation that would immediately sort of stop the conversation because it would have to be defined. And so that's one of the reasons I'm bringing up the word shibboleth today. Um, maybe you could find a way um, to use it you know, as a part of an observation about the way in which people are divided over something, and you could just throw the word out there, and then it gives you an opportunity to actually use a biblical term um, and apply it in everyday life. So the word of the day is shibboleth. All right, Peter Kapsner and I will be right back, and we're going to talk a little bit about, well, there's a failure to launch, or maybe there's a failure of parents to allow kids to fail. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. All 
All right, returning to our conversation with Dr. Peter Kapsner. Um, okay, Peter, um, so now we have to have just a quick spelling bee. Spell, oh, spell shibboleth. The definition uh, not, is dividing I'm, line, spell <laughs> shibboleth. So I'm not looking at it right now, which means that I give myself a 22% chance of having this right as S-H-I-B-B-E-L-O-T-H. O-O-L-E-T-H. Oh, I have the Shibboleth. O and the E Shibboleth. Right? Oh, thank you, yes. Shibboleth. I believe uh, it's Shibboleth. S-H-I-B-B-O-L-E-T-H. Shibboleth. I think that's right. Go. I mean, yeah, clearly the 11-year-olds on the ESPN spelling bee would, would completely destroy me in, in spelling. It's, it's, it's really good. Thank you for playing. Um, okay, <laughs> so a couple of things um, here to talk about quickly. One, um, whose fault is it that apparently half of parents are still financially supporting their adult children? Is that the children's failure to launch, or is that the failure of parents to allow their adult children to in some way fail? Well, there's this, there's probably a number of variables in this, right? I, I think clearly um, we have grown up over the last maybe 15 to 20 years in um, a, a bit more of a participation trophy kind of mentality where there isn't that learning that can happen through failure. I'm not, I'm not sure what all led to sort of this cultural zeitgeist or, or atmosphere of this fear of failure because failure in the right hands is exactly how you learn and, and, um, people that learn to fail well are, are also those people that tend to learn well. So I think we have to let people fail in, in terms of heading out in the world. But on the flip side of it, part of what I sympathize with right now is having a 21, almost 22-year-old who is going to be graduating this upcoming uh, winter at, from Northwestern. He's, getting, he's looking at apartments, and he's talking about doing that with friends here in this upcoming fall. And, and the cost of all of this, Carmen, I, some of the stats are that the cost of living, this is before the hyperinflation that sort of hit us in these last 12 months, that uh, the cost of living has more than doubled since about 1990, somewhere in that neighborhood. Uh, but then the average income has not meaningfully improved, meaning that the same kind of income you could expect coming out of college at uh, in 1990 was roughly the same as what it is today, while everything has doubled in cost. And so... It's really, I, I do this with my students in class all the time and, and say, so let's say you come out of your college experience with a $40,000 job, which is an amazing opportunity to come out with right out of school. And we start going through the cost of everything and how quickly, especially with student debt, that $40,000 gets completely sucked up and they're living in a, in a negative financial operating environment at that point. So I'm a little bit more sympathetic. I think there's a big conversation to, to be had related to the participation trophy culture in which we've lived and, and the importance of swinging the pendulum back towards allowing failure without condemning failure. I think that that pendulum swung because people were so harsh on other people. But I think the bigger conversation is a financial one. And and frankly, we, we have five kids in our house. And when Hallie and I had the opportunity to build this home and we were in our forties and my parents helped us with that still in, in our forties. And we tried to build the kind of home that would have a, a place for our kids if they were not able to launch at the usual age of 18, 19, 20 because of the finances. So um, we fully expect some of our kids to stay with us into 23, 24, 25, which is the most common living experience right now for young people. And, and that's the last part that I think I would say about all of this 
is that it's actually a little weird in the perspective of world history and even mm -hmm. global culture today that we expect 18 year olds to bail from the home and go make a way uh, for themselves. That, mm -hmm. that the typical way of understanding life is that families stay together for generations. I mean, clearly in the biblical text, that's true. Yeah. So actually, I um I love the direction that this conversation has gone because I totally wholeheartedly 100 percent believe that if you've arrived at the place where you have sufficient blessing to bless others, you ought to bless them now. Don't make them wait till you die yes. uh, to right to bless them um, and and don't make them suffer um you know on their on their way like i mean it, it it's it's one thing to strive and to you know learn how to do for yourself it's another thing to unnecessarily suffer when god has blessed your family with the means to support the flourishing generation to generation so um i'm you know i think that uh if you're listening right now and you're a grandparent and you're in a position to uh, you know, pay for classical Christian education uh, for your grandchildren. Like, I think you ought to be doing that. Uh, I yeah. think that we ought to be, um, we ought to be supporting, um, you know, the next generation in in building um, or moving into neighborhoods where they can really flourish, where their children can, um, you know, can grow up and thrive. I mean, I, you know, Jim and I are doing it, uh, and we're investing in, uh, you know, a generation of young adult children. And so I guess I wish that was the language of this piece, that we would be thinking about blessing and investment instead of, hey, these are, you know, uh, these are young adults who ought to be out there, um, you know, flying alone. I don't I don't think that's realistic for uh, for very many people in terms of the financial hurdles that they're facing. So thank you for framing it that way. All right. Um, let's spend one minute talking about this story out of um, uh, out of a college that is offering, I, I was a little bit surprised by this, Film 3000 porn. Uh, yeah. It's uh, in their online uh, catalog. There's a college offering a course on porn because it's a uh, more popular quote than Sunday Night Football. Yeah, yowzers, right? I mean, it really is a celebration of porn. And, and as one who's taught sexuality since about 2006 at various institutions, um, obviously so many people are trapped in, in the clutches of pornography and it's impacted so many people. And in that, there's a few different options. And, and one option is to just stop the fight altogether and begin to celebrate. And, and that is really kind of what you see in the biblical witness of sin, how people end up moving into places of celebration of those things. But I think there's also a different invitation, and that's for churches to begin to understand how you can move from behavior management of sin to authentic uh, internal transformation so you no longer desire that sin. And and Carmen, that's a harder road. It's, it's a longer road. And I just got done teaching this in my class a couple of weeks ago. Um, about what, what are some reliable steps and what are the paths on which you can walk in which you're not just trying to manage the behavior of porn any longer through internet blockers and, and, and accountability groups. I mean, do all of those things on the front end. But those things are just meant to create space for the transformation of the heart so that your desires shift in such a way that you no longer desire to, to do porn. In fact, it just makes you sad to think about all of that. And Jesus is terribly faithful. It's not a genie in the bottle moment. You don't get to pray it away just one night. Um, but you, you, you tend to, on that journey, see transformation. But because the church hasn't really talked a lot about that part of it, it's been more behavior management. The culture has now gone to a different place of beginning to just embrace saying, hey, this is sort of who we are. Why don't we just embrace it and celebrate it? And it's really troubling to see how popular it is, to your point.
All right, um, Peter, we got to let you go because Carl Truman is up next from Grove City College, and he's written a um, condensed version of his really big fancy book um, on... (laughs) Uh, right. Uh, and yep. so we're going to talk next about Strange New World, how thinkers and activists redefined identity and sparked the sexual revolution. Um, I think you'll be super duper interested in I will um, the content of this conversation. But thanks for um, thanks for leading us off so well in this hour. That's Dr. Peter Kapsner. You can uh, you can find him at the University of Northwestern St. Paul. We'll be right back. Back in 2020, Dr. Carl Truman brought us the rise and triumph of the modern self, cultural amnesia, expressive individualism, and the road to sexual revolution. I mean, there's just no question it is the best book I've ever read outside of the Bible. Um, Excellent book on how we got here in terms of our cultural reality. I admitted at the time that I had to keep my phone handy so that I could look up words as I read The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. And so I am very grateful uh, and thankful that Dr. Truman has sort of put the hay down where the goats can get it. Uh, Strange New World is a condensed version of the rise and triumph of the modern self. And Dr. Carl Truman joins us next to talk about it. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. Fly with me in an upside down world. There's so many strange things to see. All right, we're talking with Dr. Carl Truman from Grove City College. We're talking about Strange New World. It's his brand new book, How Thinkers and Activists Redefined Identity and Sparked the Sexual Revolution. Dr. Truman, welcome back to Mornings with Carmen. Great to be back, Carmen. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, first of all, compliments on um, this nearly heroic task of putting the hay down where the goats can get it. We all thoroughly enjoyed um, the rise and triumph of the modern self, and we all appreciate that you've made it more accessible um, in this particular book. Let me also say to our listeners, um, I do have copies to give away today. If you'd like to enter the drawing for those, text the word book to 877-933-2484. Dr. Truman, let's start with a conversation about the modern self. You say that the notion of the self serves to unify the changes um, that we are witnessing. And so you're you're helping us see that understanding the self is important to this conversation. The modern self assumes the authority of inner feelings and sees authenticity as defined by the ability to give social expression um, to the same. Why, why is understanding the self so important to understanding the culture? Well, I think when we look around at the culture, an awful lot seems to be happening. A lot of old certainties seem to be crumbling. There seems to be a lot of chaos and, and anarchy. And one of the reactions we might have to that is say, well, there's nothing here that gives coherence to what's going on. Nothing helps us make sense or to navigate what's going on. Well, what I argue in the book is that the thing that lies at the center of this, the thing that does, if you like, unify all of these different phenomena we see, sexual identity, racial chaos, et cetera, et cetera, is this highly subjective view of the self, where the self, uh, who we think we are, is is fundamentally determined by how we feel, by our inner feelings, our inner psychology. 
And that's, uh, in many ways, a highly individualistic understanding of what the self is and stands over against all of those traditional structures, institutions, traditions that gave society a kind of coherence. Once you start emphasizing the subjective in this radical way, all of those things that, that help society stay together start to weaken or even crumble. So I think getting to that, that central understanding of how we imagine ourselves to be helps us to understand why everything seems to be falling apart at the moment. If I'm no longer relying on an understanding of the self that really it comes from a cultural understanding that I am a part of something larger than myself. I am actually not self-defined. I'm not self-made. Um, I'm not best self-governed. I mean, I right that there is this authority, um, positive, positively framed this authority figure. But even that term is now so negative um, that it's hard to have a conversation, even about like autonomy versus authority, because that immediately um, makes me sound like a person who wants everybody to be oppressed. Yes. If your fundamental understanding of yourself is that human beings are free, independent, autonomous, and unencumbered, then anybody who points to obligations, natural obligations that one might have, anyone who says to, say, the, the pregnant woman, you have a natural obligation to the baby in your womb, sounds like somebody who is denying that woman's sense of selfhood at its, at its deepest level. You're saying to that person, you're not autonomous. And so when we live in a world where we're, we're fed this myth of, of individual freedom and autonomy and self-sufficiency, it's inevitable that any notion of external authority sounds oppressive and will tend to be interpreted as simply one person or one group trying to impose their arbitrary will upon another. So we're talking with Dr. Carl Truman. We're talking about his new book, Strange New World, How Thinkers and Activists Redefined Identity and Sparked the Sexual Revolution. We do have copies to give away. You can text the word book to 877-933-2484. Carl, how did this happen? Or did this just happen? Or are there some people who more or less made this happen? Well, there's no easy answer to how it happened. Certainly there are certain thinkers Uh, We could think of Jean-Jacques Rousseau and the Romantics in the late 18th, uh, 19th centuries. We could think of Sigmund Freud. Uh, The Romantics really emphasized inner feelings. Freud sexualized those inner feelings and and made sex as much an identity as as an activity. We could certainly point to certain thinkers and say that they've had a profound influence. But, of course, history produces a lot of thinkers. Only some thinkers become plausible, popular. Their ideas make their way into general culture. So I think we also need to look at, say, the role of technology. Uh, Technology allows us to imagine ourselves as free and independent. It makes philosophies of autonomy and independence more plausible because technology teaches us that that we can overcome nature. We can even overcome our own bodies now. Uh, if, if If you're born a boy, that doesn't matter. Technology allows you to become a girl. We can imagine even triumphing over the the power and authority of our own bodies at this point. So technology plays a very important role as well. And I think the entertainment industry, most people get their understanding of what it is to be a human being by watching movies, watching TV programs, watching sitcoms, where we have a particular image of what it is to live the flourishing and fulfilled life projected to us. 
All right, I want to slow down um, and take a deep breath and have um, everybody listening just consider for a moment how you think community is formed. What What is community and how is community formed? And how we answer that question is actually going to help us understand um, this conversation about not only how we got here, but where we move forward and how we move forward from this point. So, um, Dr. Truman, it would it be fair to say that in the past, community was formed around something shared, a nation, a religion, a family, um, and that today community is often formed around orientation, identity, um, social justice, some kind of agenda. Um, is it fair to to sort of describe the community as formed in different ways um, over time and that that's a serious disruption from the way things used to be? Absolutely. I mean, when you think back uh, in time, think about traditional communities, traditional communities typically had a, a givenness to them and had a stability. Uh, for example, you're born into a family. The family was an established unit. You were born into a network of relationships that involved obligations and dependencies. They weren't things that you chose. They were things that you were naturally born into. You would live in a village, and, and the village was given. It was there when you arrived, if you like, as a child, and already had an established network into which you had to fit yourself. Uh, the nation existed as something bigger than you, and it placed natural obligations upon you. You don't volunteer to be part of uh, a nation. You are part of a nation, and that brings with it natural obligations. These days, those things are breaking down. Uh, the family, who can even define a family now? A family is a matter of choice. How you define the family is how you choose to define your family. Uh, nations no longer grip the imagination. When you think of how national history is now often portrayed, typically as an unremitting story of injustice and nastiness. It's not surprising that young people grow up feeling no obligation to their nation, no natural obligation to their nation. And that leaves something of a vacuum, of course, of belonging. We all, we all want to belong. We all want to be part of a community. And if the old communities are collapsing, well, where do we go? Well, we go to the new strong communities that are emerging, the ones that define themselves racially or sexually. Uh, but interesting enough, we, we choose to join those. We contract into them, we might say. They're not natural obligations. And therefore, I think those communities are inevitably, you know, will, will prove less long-standing than the traditional communities and, and further feed the, the sense of continual change and continual volatility that we're all experiencing at the moment. Continual change and continual volatility. Those are those are places of great discomfort. Um, and I think it's the angst that uh, that we all recognize and are trying to find ways to talk about. We're talking with Dr. Carl Truman about his brand new book, Strange New World, How Thinkers and Activists Redefined Identity and Sparked the Sexual Revolution. We've got copies to give away today to enter the drawing. Text the word book to 877-933-2484. We will rejoin this conversation in just a moment. It's a mad man world that's really thing What's wrong with us? Gotta keep your heads up high. Can be giving Do you feel like a stranger in the world? Would you like someone to help you 
understand the strange new world in which we live. That's exactly what Dr. Carl Truman is seeking to do. The book is Strange New World, How Thinkers and Activists Redefined Identity and Sparked the Sexual Revolution. Um, We're giving away copies today. Text the word book to 877-933-2484. I'd like to jump, uh, Dr. Truman, if I can, to, um, you know, those of us who are living as strangers in this strange new world. Can you just talk a little bit about how um, how you see Christians navigating uh, this cultural reality? Yeah, it's a, again, it's a it's it's a question that doesn't lend itself to a, to a quick and easy answer, but I'll I'll give I'll give it a stab. I think first of all, we need to realize it's important for Christians to understand the dynamics of the culture in which we're operating. There's a sense in which the apologetic task at the moment is almost. Uh, more more fittingly directed towards Christians to enable them to understand the dynamics of the culture around them, particularly older Christians like myself uh, who grew up in a very different world. We're not, we're not instinctively equipped to understand the world of identity politics because it's not the world of the Cold War that we grew up in. So I think the first thing that Christians need to do is make sure they understand the logic of identity politics, logic of the world around them. Secondly, I think Christians need to uh, resist the temptation to despair at this point. Uh, uh, The promise is to the church. We know who wins. Uh, The promise is not to America. The promise is not to my denomination. The promise is, is not to any individual Christian that they're going to have a triumphant and wonderful life. The promise is that at the end of time, uh, the marriage feast of the Lamb will take place, and that's that's guaranteed. So we should not panic, given the times we live in. Thirdly, I think it's useful to to look at the New Testament, particularly to look at in the New Testament of how the New Testament sees Christians living in the world. And it, it seems to me that when you read the letters of Paul, and when you look at the language that, say, Peter uses of exile, uh, you realize that the Christians are never meant to be fully at home in this world. That's not to say that we're to withdraw from it, because uh, as Jeremiah says to the Israelites as they're going into exile, you know, seek the welfare of the city, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. Talking about going to Babylon. I think there are many common loves that Christians can share with their non-Christian neighbors and fellow citizens that mean we can live and pursue similar goals in this earthly sphere in many ways. We can seek peace. We can seek prosperity. We can seek to make the streets safe for our kids to play in, uh, for people to walk in at night. There are many common loves that we share, but we must not make the mistake of identifying those earthly loves and that earthly stability with the kingdom of God. I think we need a heavenly focus. We need to be focused on the kingdom that is coming, even as we seek to fulfill our duty towards the earthly kingdom that we we are part of as well. Oh, that's so good. All right. I was taking uh, I was taking notes as fast as I could. That's um, that's such a gift. Thank you. Thank you, Carl, for that. We've got a listener who's um, who's wondering um, if we could muse for a moment about spiritual warfare, the greater spiritual plan, the reality of an enemy, the season of history we might find ourselves in. So this is a drawing the scope back, um, you know, from sort of my contemporary angst to the bigger question of what might be going on. Yeah. Yeah, these questions are always interesting. And I'm coming to the conclusion that that people in my 
Christian tradition, which is the Presbyterian Christian tradition. We tended to downplay the, the spiritual side of things, I think out of a, a reaction against or a fear of over-spiritualizing things, seeing you know, de- demons under, under every pillow or under every, every bed kind of thing, which I think some other Christian traditions can perhaps tilt towards. But I do think we're in a situation now where there is such evil in our society that is being approved of and argued for by people who really should know better, that it is hard not to see that there is some deeper spiritual crisis going on here, that the spiritual warfare that I think is a perennial of human history is perhaps nearer the surface now than it has been. Uh, That's not to, as I say, I, I don't want to speculate too much on that, but it is to say we do need to realize that the war we're, we're engaged in is, is not simply a question of producing good arguments to persuade people. It's not simply a question of assuming that everybody will, will see the obvious ultimately in support. And I think we need to realize that there is, at a minimum, a real blindness uh, to our culture and society at the moment concerning some very basic obvious goods the welfare of children, for example, vis-a-vis what's going on in the transgender uh, situation. Ten years ago, I thought it was obvious that one should not mutilate the body of a child. Uh, One should not allow a child to choose to be sterilized, but one would not allow that child to choose the college they want to go to ten years from then. Uh, Now we find ourselves being vilified for arguing that children should not have their bodies mutilated. It's hard to see that going on in society and not think that there isn't a deeper evil, a deeper spiritual evil at work here. Yeah, and into that conversation, we might add the entire conversation about um, abortion, which you know has morphed into um, a conversation even about infanticide. I, yeah. It is hard to... It is, it is hard to look at a culture that is uh, talking about abortion in the ways that ours is talking about it and not say to oneself, yes, the spiritual warfare that is perennial does feel nearer to the surface today. I think that's a uh, a very good way of saying that. Um, Dr. Truman, we talked yesterday um, with Jim Dennison. He is a big fan of yours, um, and he suggested that I ask you a couple of questions. So I'm going to um, put those together. First of all, this uh, appreciation for the way that you connect the dots um, from the past to the present. And then he asked um, if you would do a little, uh, based on the connecting of those dots and the trajectory you see, if you would do a little predicting about the future. So where do you see things going? What are your predictions of the dots going forward? That's an interesting question. And my, my, my get out is I'm a historian who describes the past, not predicts the future, but I will attempt couple of stabs. One, I think if we continue down the path we're going down, which I would regard as a fundamentally dehumanizing of what it means to be human, it is hard to see that Western society will survive in any coherent form. Uh, Having said that, history indicates that there are societies that, that commit suicide and there are societies that pull back from the brink of suicide. Unfortunately, we can't tell which is which until it does one or the other. So my My thinking is that unless things dramatically change, we will see further chaos uh, evolving within our society over the next 
50 to 100 years. We're already seeing that in the highly fractious politics that has developed over the last five or 10 years. Uh, that could start to spread to, to broader society and lead to some really fundamental realignments on the political front, I think, and raise the whole question of whether Western uh, liberal democracy is actually viable. So I am pessimistic, I think. I hope that we may pull back from the brink, but my prediction is uh, things will get worse. The, the one beam of light I might see is I think transgenderism is proving a step too far, and we're beginning to see a reaction against that, particularly as it's impacting children and with the rise of people wanting to transition back. Um, sadly, the reversal on that will, will only come at the cost of countless mutilated bodies and destroyed lives. But I have a feeling that we're going to start seeing lawsuits in the next decade or two brought by children against the doctors and the insurance companies that facilitated their physical abuse and mutilation, maybe even lawsuits against their parents. And that could turn the tide on the trans issue. But the broader uh, cultural picture seems to me we need to find something that holds us together. And expressive individualism doesn't really provide us with that. And that makes me very pessimistic about the future of society as, as a coherent whole. I guess we will just answer that by acknowledging that Jesus is the one who holds it all together, and we will uh, we will cling to him in the midst of the times in which we live, and we will walk by faith into the future um, and do so as God's people and, and lights bearing witness uh, in an increasingly dark culture. Dr. Truman, as always, thank you for the blessing of your company today. Thank you for the gift of this book and the ongoing conversation. Strange New World, How Thinkers and Activists Redefined Identity and Sparked the Sexual Revolution. If you want to enter the drawing for the books we have to give away here in studio, just text the word book to 877-933-2484. Dr. Truman, thank you so much. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. All right, you're listening to Mornings with Carmen. We'll be right back. The need for devoted disciples of Jesus to shine as lights in the world, Philippians 2.15. Um, you know, that is our calling. That's who we are. That is what we do. So let us, um, let us shine today. Go be shiny, recognizing that the world is dark. The light has come. Uh, Jesus is the light of the world, and we bear, we bear him out to others. So go out there today and be shiny. Let your light so shine before others that people would see your good works and come to glorify God who is in heaven. It is his day. He has made it, and it is good. Have a great day, and God bless. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way, you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.